Nobody wants to have infirmity. Nobody wants to lose their memory. But you work with it as best as you can. You discover things about yourself as a caregiver that you cannot experience any other way. There's a selflessness that's involved. There is a way of discovering how strong you are and what kind of a person you are. Hello, and welcome to the Age Stage Podcast, where it is our mission to equip you with the resources to navigate life's challenges, empower you to make critical choices with the ones you love as they age, and enrich your life with a renewed sense of self-worth, self-confidence, and peace of mind. I'm your host, Dr. Cheryl Matthew. I'm happy to bring you this three-part series from Age Sage with Dr. Karen Josephson. This is part one, Alzheimer's from fear to understanding. As a board-certified internal and geriatric medicine doctor, Dr. Josephson works with older adults and their families. In a world where the approach is often treat as many as you can, Dr. Josephson's practice involves more than a technical approach with just tests and studies. In this episode, she acknowledges the fear so many of us have associated with an Alzheimer's disease diagnosis, and she walks us through the practical steps from fear to greater understanding of the disease, including techniques for your own physical and mental fitness. I'm really happy you're joining us. I think you'll find great value in the wisdom and information Dr. Josephson has to share. We'll get rolling right after a word from one of our sponsors. Every passage in life has its ups and downs, decisions and transitions, a beginning and an end. I invite you to navigate life's journey like an age sage, fully living, learning, and loving. As we care for our aging loved ones, we also need to make time to care for ourselves. So this is our safe space to share challenges, wisdom, and joy along life's adventure. I'm your guide, Dr. Cheryl Matthew, and this is Age Sage. Welcome to Age Sage. I'm really excited to have our guest today, Dr. Karen Josephson. She's a board-certified internal and geriatric medicine doctor. She was an assistant professor at USC Keck School of Medicine. She worked for a large medical group and is now in private practice doing office visits, home visits, or visiting the person wherever they are. So welcome, Dr. Karen. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So today we're going to talk about Alzheimer's and dementia, what it is, how to care for someone with it, how to prevent it, and all kind of fun stuff like that. And, you know, people are afraid of what they don't know. Today, I'd like to take some of the fear away by educating people and giving them more information about what is Alzheimer's and dementia. How would you describe Alzheimer's and dementia, what's the difference? Well, dementia is when you have an impairment in your memory and an impairment in some higher cognitive functions, such as being able to recognize spatial things or being able to alternate between two tasks and keep on track or being able to plan things. So it's not just a memory issue, it's a, a memory issue plus. And the other component of the diagnosis 
is that it also interferes with your life. So if you spend your whole life not doing anything, you would never know if you had dementia. Alzheimer's is a form of dementia. And even in that diagnosis, there's a huge spectrum. The typical person that you see with Alzheimer's is that at some point in their life, they can't incorporate any new memories. It's like a curtain comes down. It seems like these days, one of the top fears of people is getting dementia or Alzheimer's, mainly because it's scary that we don't have memory and also that there's not a clear-cut cause or a treatment. So what do you say to people if they you know, start forgetting little things? Maybe they forget names more than they used to or, gosh, where did I, where did I put my keys? You know, and... People will joke around like, oh, I had a you know, senior moment. What is the difference between normal aging and something we should be concerned about that might be Alzheimer's or a type of dementia? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, it's like if I'm 20 years old and I forgot where I put my keys, it wouldn't bother me. But if I'm 70 years old and I forget where I put my keys, it bothers me. And there are changes that happen in the brain as you get older you can still make new memories. It takes more effort to make them though. It takes more effort to learn and it takes more effort to retrieve these memories too. It's like I could spend two days thinking, what was the name of that, the actor who played that character? And as long as it stays in my mind to bug me, then I don't have a problem with my memory. It's just retrieving that particular piece of data, but my brain can hold this information. And so I tell people, if you have that tip of the tongue phenomenon where you're trying to remember something and you can't and it bothers you and it bothers you, and then finally, oh yeah, it's this, there's nothing wrong with your brain. This is what happens as we get older. It's when you can't think of it and, oh well, and it never occurs to you to say, well, I really do want to think of this. There's a condition called mild cognitive impairment or MCI, which accounts for this gray area of somebody who is not doing as well as they used to, but they're not as bad as to make a diagnosis of dementia. And that frequently these people can just stay in this gray area and that's it. Or some will you know, with an added stressor possibly, such as a great loss in their life or a medical condition and they have to go into the hospital and get surgery and they get anesthesia and now they come out and they're not the same. Some stressor like that pushes them over into uh, dementia or it's within that natural progression that they have. So there's not one point where you say, okay, it happened today, but it's a spectrum and so also to adapt to what's going on. So if you're having problems remembering things, then you start keeping a little notepad with you and writing things down that you know that you need to do, you know, like your day planner. And multitasking is never a good idea for anybody because you can't do anything as well single tasking, you know, anything as well multitasking as you can single tasking 
And so taking that into account for as you get older, saying, hey, I'm going to focus on what I need to do so I could do a good job. So it'll take more time. And as we get older, we're also more easily distracted. So don't have the radio or the TV or something on while you need to focus on doing your um, budget or your taxes, because that will more likely make you less effective in your thinking. So it's a spectrum, and all of aging is adaptation and trying to work with it, trying to maximize what you have got, and to fix what you can fix. Now, hearing your description of what's normal aging versus a possible type of dementia, hopefully the fear can decrease. And then if we cooperate with, these are just changes in the brain as I age. It's not good or bad. It's just, they're just changes. And how can I adapt to it? Like use my notepad, turn the music off if I'm doing my taxes or whatever we need to do to adjust. Then we can come into cooperation with what is the normal changes of aging instead of, oh my gosh, I can't do this like I used to. I must have dementia. This is bad. And also what you think is. So if you think you have a problem with your memory, you're going to be more observant of having a problem with your memory and you're going to have the expectation of a problem with your memory. And so having that negative thought pattern contributes. Something I didn't mention, which is really important, is exercise. You know, you're never too old to exercise. And that helps circulate the brain, helps, you know, make you feel good. And it's necessary for us. So keeping, in in addition to the sleep, in addition to the nutrition, exercise is important. And something else to keep in mind, you know, it's like I noticed this last night, I had baked a bread and then my brain was kind of foggy afterwards. And you've, you know, you've probably heard the term grain brain. And certain foods will affect our ability to think well too. And so if you're eating a lot of sugar, eating a lot of processed foods, your brain isn't going to feel as clear as if you eat healthy, nutritious plants, and vegetables, and grass-fed beef, and stuff like that. That's a great point, too. So sometimes people think, oh, my memory isn't what it used to. I'm just getting old. That's just what happens. So instead of that, knowing that things like sleep, exercise, nutrition, meditation, all can impact it. And we can, most of the time, there, there can be an improvement. It can only help. It can only help. Overall, general health helps. What about brain exercises? And, you know, we heard about like brain health and Sudoku or crossword puzzles. Does that help keep our memory intact? The Best evidence is those that are involving novel exercises. So it's learning something new or doing art or playing music, learning how to play a new instrument. All those things have more of an effect than doing crossword puzzles or Sudoku because you are challenging the brain to interact in a different way. 
you know, the there was a big rush of all these apps to uh, improve your memory. But what you do is you actually become just better at the app. But that's a single area of the brain and doesn't necessarily translate over to the rest of the brain. But when you cross over to a different new activity, that's when you really change. It's like picking up a new language. So learning how to do a new computer activity would be better than to do the same Sudoku activity over and over. Now, some people I've, I know are afraid that they're going to get it because their mom or dad had it. Is Alzheimer's genetic and what percentage, like if your mom and dad have it, should you worry? Uh, you know, that's a really big issue because people get frightened when they see it or, you know, like for my mother, there's been nobody in my family had dementia and my mother had dementia. So there are some genetic predispositions for it. Uh, you might have heard of apolipoprotein E4, that if you have both genes for this, you're at a 60% greater risk than the general population for developing Alzheimer's. But keep in mind, it's 60%. It's not 100%. And also that genetics really only account for 10% of our illnesses. The rest is environmental. The rest is what we do with ourselves and the way we think and the way we eat and the way we exercise and the meds we put in our body and the toxins in our environment. All this plays a greater role than our genetics. And the world that your parents grew up in is not the world you grew up in. So they may have had lead paint in their walls and they may have had exposure to all these toxins before the EPA said, you know, this isn't a good thing to have. So it's a totally different world for you than for them. It is not a fait complete that you are going to develop dementia because a parent did. Taking that into account, though, there is a more genetic associated form of Alzheimer's. And this is early onset Alzheimer's or frontal lobe dementia. And they have an abnormality in a gene that if you've got both genes, then you're very likely to develop that form of frontal lobe dementia. So that's different and that's early onset. But again, we have to take into account what other components. You see, the, the DNA is just a blueprint. That's all it is. So when you have a blueprint of your house, you do not have a house. You have a plan that can be used but not everything in that blueprint is going to be expressed. So it is the environment that will tell the cell, these are the proteins that we need to have expressed. We're under a lot of stress. These harmful toxins are coming into our body. We need to up our immune system. We need to have this aggressive approach. That's going to create a different result then somebody who's eating well, who's peaceful, those proteins may not be expressed. Having somebody with dementia doesn't mean you will have dementia. And I think running out and getting genetic testing is giving you a false sense of security and a false sense of alarm. 
you know, unless you're in a study for it, I wouldn't go down that path. What I think is fascinating is, so when they examine brains upon autopsy, and that in certain brains they see shrinkage, and it looks like that person should have had and demonstrated Alzheimer's symptoms when they were alive, but they actually didn't. So why does one person's brain look like it has a shrinkage that's related to Alzheimer's and they demonstrated symptoms of that, and some people didn't? And it is fascinating, and there have been so many you know, historical studies of how somebody had half their brain squished because of a major bleed, and there was absolutely no functional impairment. So even though they have half the size of the brain they had before, their brain is functioning just fine. So getting an x-ray and seeing the anatomy doesn't tell you how the physiology is. It doesn't tell you the function. And so it's like somebody who has arthritis and you get an x-ray, it could look terrible or it could look fine, but it doesn't tell you what they're feeling. So say a, a someone, say a family member or a friend notices that someone else is struggling with their memory or their decision making, maybe they're getting lost in familiar areas. What do you suggest is the first thing to do? Well, the first thing I would do is see if they're aware of it. It's common in Alzheimer's that people do not have the insight that there's an impairment as opposed to other things going on. So the first thing they should ask is, you know, I've noticed this happening. Have you noticed it too? And then getting some information about what they feel is going on because they may have the answer for you. They may say, well, yeah, I usually have this problem after I take my afternoon meds or I haven't been sleeping well, or, I mean, there may be another reason for it. And then look into, well, let's see what we can do to optimize how you're doing. So there's a lot of fear that's involved with the diagnosis. And so trying to casually bring it up to somebody and say, hey, yeah, I noticed some of these behaviors. You don't say you have a problem. You say I've noticed that sometimes you get lost when you come home or you've forgotten to pick up things that you went to the store to get. Um, have you noticed anything like that? Because it's people get scared, will get defensive, but they may also have a very good explanation for, yeah, I got lost because... I was so distracted by this other thing going on in my head that I forgot that I missed the exit. So, you know, there may be a reason for it. Uh, taking them to the doctor for evaluation, trying to be as objective and focus on what you've noticed, so that gives a clue for the doctor to know what to look into. And also to look at the whole situation what medications do they are? What diagnoses do they have? What tests would be indicated? Should they get a scan of the head? Is this something that happens only at a certain time of day? You know, is it just at night that you see this? Or is it something that comes and goes depending on what medication they've taken? 
with the evaluation should be mental status testing. And the comprehensive testing is the best because it looks at various aspects of how the brain functions and reasons. And so there are some quick short tests, but they're not very sensitive or specific for identifying dementia. It's used as a tool to follow once you have the initial evaluation. But there are many, especially academic institutions, that have a cognitive impairment assessment clinic. And this is usually a full day or sometimes even two-day affair where they will go through various questions and asking for analysis of situations to determine whether there is a problem. Many medical schools will have cognitive evaluation, like there's a one that I took my mother to uh, associated with UC Irvine that uh, does it. UCLA has one. USC has one. So, you know, all the major medical institutions that have a department for geriatrics or department for neurology will often have something like this. Is it important for someone to see a neurologist? Sometimes I hear of people being recommended to get an MRI and a spinal tab for the, to see what's going on. What type of test do you recommend? A lot of it depends on how they functioned on the clinical evaluation. It is standard to get an MRI of the brain to look for a structural lesion. And with one of my patients who came in with, quote, dementia, but the pattern of the memory impairment was not consistent with Alzheimer's, and more consistent with what I would call a structural lesion. And we got an MRI and there was a tumor. So, you know, an MRI is pretty basic. Another one that is often done is a PET scan. And this looks for functional, a functional measure of how the brain is doing. So the MRI just looks at the structure. The PET scan looks at how the brain uptakes glucose. And so you could see parts of the brain working better than others. A SPECT scan would look at blood flow to the brain. So it depends on what you're looking for. Just because there's something structural doesn't mean that reflects exactly what's going on on the functional picture. A CT scan um, is not detailed enough in the brain tissue to be used as a scanning for causes of dementia. The uh, spinal tap is used when you suspect that there is something to indicate like an infection in the nervous system that could cause it. So if there's certain markers that come back positive for a particular infection or Sometimes it's a fungal infection, viral infection, bacterial infection. And so for that, you would look into it. Or markers, if you think somebody may have a neurological condition like MS, and this is one way to make a diagnosis. But it is not a standard 
technique to do a spinal tap, I usually use the the concept of if there has been a rapid decline within the past several months, then that may indicate that there is an infection going on, and so a spinal tap would be indicated. So at HSAIDS, one of the things we focus on is self-care, especially for the person who's caring for someone with dementia. I'd love to hear about what you suggest for self-care, along with what is your favorite self-care activity? What, is you, what have you found that works for you? Well, it is so important to do the self-care. And unfortunately, a lot of these caregivers become martyrs. They would give it all to the person they're caring for and do nothing for themselves. Or they would feel guilty if they took time off. But they have to be reminded that if you are not functioning well, you can't take care of another person. So you do have to take care of yourself. You are important. They are not the most important person in your life. You are the most important person in your life. You put your oxygen mask on first before you put it on the other person. So very important to do self-care. And that means to make sure that they get sleep, to make sure that they eat, to make sure that they get the breaks that they need. It is incredibly stressful caring for somebody else, especially when you don't know what their response is going to be to you. And you know that they're not following recommendations. And you know as soon as you leave that room to go to the bathroom that they're going to climb out of bed even though you told them not to. So it is incredibly stressful to be a caregiver. And the best thing they could do is have somebody take over for them at times, have respite care. Have somebody come in. We find that with families, there's generally one person who gets designated as the caregiver. You know, it's, you know, by default or because people live far away or whatever else. And I say, well, then ask the other siblings or the other people to give you money to pay for somebody to be there so you can get a break. So you can sit outside, so you can breathe. And for me personally, the best thing I could do for myself is exercise, is go out for that walk or that bike ride or that swim. That rejuvenates you. That restores your your energy bank so you can go in and help that person better. And it helps your immune system too. So it's good on all accounts. Once someone gets a diagnosis of dementia, it can be really scary. And the people who love that person or care for that person can feel helpless and hopeless. And it's often called the long goodbye because it's a disease that that can extend over a long period of time. And it can change the dreams we've had of our future. If we always wanted to, you know, we're going to retire and we're going to move to the ocean or we're going to travel. And then dementia steps in and the trajectory of their life changes. The, The dreams of the their future that they had changes. Do you have sage words of advice to offer people during the time when someone gets a diagnosis of dementia and so they can look to the future with hope and find peace of mind, know they're not alone and feel hopeful? I, you know, I think it's really important to understand, okay, first of all, everybody dies and you're going to die of something. But what's important is 
how you choose to respond to everything that happens in your life. I had a patient who is on hospice, and I walk into her room, and the room is dark, and she's sitting in the corner doing nothing. And I asked her if she was dead, and she said no. And I said, then why don't you start living? Because we all have a terminal illness. It's called being human. And it doesn't have to be a negative experience all the time. Nobody wants to have infirmity. Nobody wants to lose their memory. But you work with it as best as you can. You discover things about yourself as a caregiver that you cannot experience any other way. There's a selflessness that's involved. There is a way of discovering how strong you are and what kind of a person you are. And I've had people tell me it was the hardest thing they had ever done as a caregiver, but it was one of the most important things they had ever done. Because what they had gained from it in themselves, in their character, was so incredibly important. Every illness that we have is an opportunity for us to grow stronger. We may never fight and win the battle against the illness, but we can develop a sense of peace. We can develop a sense of who we are by going through this experience and saying, you know, it was worth it. So you work with what you have, you do the best with what you can, and you understand that you have 100% control over your emotional response to everything. And what do you want to choose to feel? If you feel overwhelmed and you say, I don't want to feel overwhelmed, well, then you do something about it. You change your perspective. You get the assistance that you need. And you take joy in knowing that you are making a difference in somebody else's life, even if they don't know that, even if they can't recognize it. You know it. And that's what being human is all about. I couldn't agree with you more. Those are beautiful words. And you know, I relate to that. In caring for other people, I the benefit, the unintended consequence I found was I found the source of caring inside of me, the highest part of me. So that's amazing. So there is... You know, in age age, we talk about perspective and the meaning we give things and how we respond. So you, you just beautifully nailed that. So thank you so much. That's great. It's interesting. For each person, it's different. And even though I had cared for a lot of people going through this process, when it was my own parent, it was a different experience. And it gave me a much greater depth of understanding, and also growth for myself. It is a powerful thing that happens when we go through a difficult obstacle like dementia. But even people with dementia could still grow and still learn and still find joy. All right. Thank you so much for being our guest today. It's um, gave us a lot to think about and feel hopeful about. So thank you so much, Dr. Karen. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. Thank you for joining us. 
At AgeSage, our aim is to equip you with resources to navigate life's challenges, empower you to make critical choices with your aging loved ones, and enrich your life with a renewed sense of self-worth, self-confidence, and peace of mind. I want to take a moment to ask you to rate, review, and recommend this podcast. AgeSage is a new podcast that we created just for you, but no one will know about it if our listeners don't spread the word. So please take a moment now to review it and share it with friends whom you know would benefit from it. If you have a burning question that you would like me to answer on the show, please head over to agesage.co and leave me a voicemail. There you will also find detailed show notes for each episode, and you can download my free ebook, Advocating for Aging Loved Ones. Once again, that's agesage.co, A-G-E-S-A-G-E dot C-O. This is Dr. Cheryl Matthew, and I want to thank you again for joining us today. I look forward to sharing this journey with you.